Attention. This podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From out of the darkness, you hear voices that send shivers down your spine. That feeling of dread is undeniable. When you notice the monster under the bed is trembling. The aliens are scrambling to get back to the mothership. And the vampires are refusing to rise. Your reptilian overlords are pleased to force on you two humans they swear are not their captives. Your hosts, Michael and Wendy. This is Eerie and Absurd. Go. Okay, go. Go. I'm going. (laughs) Welcome back to Eerie and Absurd. I'm Mike. I'm Wendy. It's been a little while. Just a week, right? Yeah. Well, we were missing on Missing Monday because of the holiday. Yes, we were. And I do apologize. I can't wait. Okay. Well, you're going to have to. So I was going to talk about this article I saw. It says, this is the headline. It's from Radio.com. Okay. Man's wife sells his PlayStation 5 after she discovers he lied and said it was an air purifier. What? (laughs) A Taiwanese man was one of the lucky few to actually get his hands on the PlayStation 5. Unfortunately, his wife wasn't really thrilled with the amount of video games he played preceding the purchase, so she had to, so he had to hide the fact that he bought one from her. So he told her it wasn't a PlayStation, it's an air purifier. <laughs> and there's a picture of the air purifier that he said it was, and it, it actually does look like a PlayStation 5. Oh my God. <laughs> but she sold it, so... Busted. Mm-hmm. Wow. Luckily, I don't play that much video games. That's a lie. I feel like you're extremely happy with the amount I play. No. You play all the time. Luckily, I don't have a PS5 for you to sell. That's because nobody can get them in America. How did he get them? He's in Taiwan. Okay, so there's another story. It's on the nypost.com. And it says, this record-breaking baby is 27 years old. Two years younger than her mom. Okay. What? Lies. Yeah, so it's a, uh, there's an 18-month gap between the two, the mom and her baby. It says, and thanks to the wonder of science, the record-breaking infant is technically 27 years old. What? It's the embryo. It was frozen in 1992. The mother is 29. She was born in April 1991. Wow. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? So it'd been frozen that whole time. Yeah. And it's still viable. Still viable. That's amazing. I didn't know they last that long. Yeah, so go check out the article. It's pretty long. I'm not going to read it all. Okay. But it's pretty crazy. All right, so you get to go first all right. today because I went first last time. So my story is the Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876. Hell. It was a clear March morning in Olympia Springs, Kentucky, in Bath County. Around 11 and 12 o'clock on March 3rd, Mary Crouch, a local farmer's wife, was in the yard making soap when meat started falling from the sky. The shower was made up of fresh, raw meat, some lumps as light as snowflakes, and some that reached up to three and four inches. Mm Mm-mm. For several minutes, Mrs. Crouch watched as the unusual downpour fell around her before it finally ceased, leaving the sky 
as clear and sunny as it had been before. Immediately, Mary believed that the meat shower had either been a miracle or a grisly warning. Before long, word of the meat shower had spread bringing flocks of curious neighbors to the farm. In the end, an area of about a hundred yards long and fifty yards wide had been left covered in chunks of meat. It was found on fences, the farmhouse, and scattered across the ground. In the end, as much as two thousand pounds of meat dropped from the sky. People at the time described it as enough to fill a horse wagon. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that's quite a bit. But it was like in a in a hundred foot like area? A hundred yards by oh, okay. fifty yards. Okay. Wow. I misheard you. I was like hundred it's not that big, but that is big. Yeah. It's like a football field. Mm-hmm. Two, right? Hundred yards long as a football field. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I forgot where I was. Okay. The chunks of meat were red with pieces of sinew and muscle fiber, and it looked and smelled like beef. Ugh. By the time the others arrived to view the meat, it had dried out and took on a more jerky-like appearance. That quickly? Well. I mean, I guess they had to get their bucket. <laughs> yeah, they weren't in their Honda. They were, they were hooking up their horse wagon. Yeah. A couple of brave men took it upon themselves to taste the mystery meat and claimed it had a beef or mutton flavor. A local butcher also tasted the meat and said it tasted neither like flesh, fish, or fowl. Ew, I guess the butcher would know. Uh, yes, he's just sitting there tasting meat all day. I don't know. You shouldn't be eating that stuff coming out the sky. <laughs> Even the Crouch family cat smelled the meat and then seemingly satisfied with what it saw, proceeded to gorge itself. Yeah, well, they licked their butts. That's so. true. I'm not going to trust the cat. But generally, animals know when not to eat stuff. They loved it. Ugh. So this isn't the first time in history that strange things have fallen from the sky. Occurrences of blood rain throughout history are distributed from the ancient to modern day. Have you ever heard of blood rain? I have. Unusual events such as blood rain were considered bad omens, and this belief persisted through the Middle Ages and well into the early modern period. One major blood rain event came right before the Black Death pandemic. The phenomenon gained exposure to a wide audience in the 16th century during the Renaissance when it was used as an example of the power of God. Today, we know that the red color of the rain is likely caused by aerial spores of microalgae that gives it its red color. You ever heard of watermelon snow? No. Watermelon snow is a phenomenon caused by a species of algae. Unlike most species of freshwater algae, it is cold-loving and thrives in freezing water. This type of snow is common during the summer in the alpine and coastal polar regions worldwide, such as Sierra Nevada of California. So just, uh, yeah, it's just like a red snow. Huh. Why is it called watermelon snow? I guess because it's... Is it the color watermelon? They call it blood snow also. Okay. There's several names for it. I don't know if they ate it and it tastes like watermelon. It looks like a light pink until you step in it and then it fills with like a red puddle. Ooh. That's pretty cool. On November 11th, 1846, a luminous object estimated at four feet in diameter fell at Lowell, New York leaving behind a heap of foul-smelling luminous jelly that disappeared quickly. 
1950, four Philadelphia police officers reported the discovery of a domed disc of quivering jelly six feet in diameter and one foot thick. When they tried to pick it up, it dissolved into an odorless, sticky scum. This incident inspired the 1958 movie The Blob. In December of 1983, a grayish-white oily gelatin fell on North Reading, Massachusetts. Thomas Greenlee reported finding it on his lawn, on the streets and sidewalks, and dripping from gas station pumps. A more modern-day blood rain occurred in 2018 in Siberia. Siberia is Russia's largest and arguably weirdest geographical region. It is a place where bricks of gold drop from the sky and severed human hands sprout out of the snow. I don't think so. (laughs) And sometimes it also seems to rain blood. (laughs) Well. (laughs) This is a weird article. So a fisherman in Siberia made a grim discovery on March 8, 2018, while walking near the icy Amur River, 27 pairs of human hands severed at the wrist and stuffed into a bag. Russian authorities said the hands were likely disposed of by local forensics lab, bucking proper protocol, and not to worry about it. What year was this? 2018. Okay. Okay. Initially, the fishermen saw only one hand sticking out of the snow and then discovered the bag full of hands. Mm. Mm Mm-mm. Okay, so then this was March 15th, so just a week later after the hands were found. This is in (laughs) Siberia also. For a few glorious minutes on Thursday, March 15, 2018, the gray skies of Siberia were filled with gold. Nearly 200 bricks of Russian gold spilled over Siberia following a cargo plane malfunction. A Cold War-era cargo aircraft called the Anatova An-12 had just taken off from an airport in Siberia, carrying an estimated $378 million in gold, platinum, and diamonds on behalf of a private mining company. The plane's cargo hatch tore open during takeoff. The Ides of March. (laughs) It was really bad for that pilot because, you know, they're not alive now. Yeah, that's a huge problem. Yeah. Old miners, they don't be playing around. Then on July 3rd of the same year, in Siberia, an ominous blood rain began to fall. That's what some locals thought when a crimson-colored downpour spilled over a parking lot in the industrial town of Norlisk. The rain-stained cars red spread blood-colored puddles all over the asphalt and cultivated the general vibe of a town turned into a horror movie. The local nor-nickel metallurgical plant took responsibility for the ominous downpour. According to Russian news sources, nor-nickel factory officials were in the midst of scraping huge amounts of iron oxide residue, a.k.a. rust, off the factory's floor and roof to improve environmental health and safety. Unfortunately, someone forgot to put a lid on the cache of rust. Oh, no. The rain mixed with the dust, and thus a storm of blood filled the factory parking lot. So, that's the explanation. I mean, how big was this can of rust? I guess it was huge. Right? And it just fell over? Yeah. A small town in Honduras experiences a rain of fish once or twice a year. Residents of Yarrow in Honduras, what's more interesting is the fact that Yarrow is actually miles away from the ocean. Reportedly, this rain of fish phenomenon is also called Luvia de Peces. Okay. I nailed that. Do it. (laughs) Which has been taking place in this little town since the 1800s during the months of May and June. 
In fact, every year a big storm sweeps through the town, followed by heavy rain. After the storm passes, the roads are scattered with flapping live fish. Isn't that weird? That eat, do they eat them? They're like little minnows. Oh, so you really can't eat them? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could, but they're probably not any good. Okay. I don't know. It's a good question. Okay, so we're going to go back to 1876 in Olympia Springs, Kentucky. Okay. Town authorities decided it was time to get an official ruling on what exactly had fallen from the sky. So they collected samples and wrapped them up, sending them to chemists and universities around the country. One chemist from Louisville College said the sample was indeed, as one of the hunters had suggested, mutton. Another disagreed, stating that while it was certainly was meat, it definitely was not mutton. He didn't say what it was, though. Okay, explain to the dummies what mutton is, and that's the dummies me. Mutton is sheep. Okay. Sheep sounds better than mutton. Mm -hmm. just want to say that. I believe, although I'm not certain, lamb, it's a baby sheep, would be like a mutton chop from an adult. So they didn't have the technology back then to really tell exactly what the meat was. One of the scientists, on one of the articles, it said one of the scientists even suggested it was tissues from the lungs of a child or goat. A child? That's what it said. A human child? Yeah. Or goat? Or goat. Oh, my word. So eventually scientists gave up on the what and started focusing more on the where. Where? Not the why. Not the why. If it was in fact meat, how did it fall from the sky? And more importantly, how did it get up there in the first place? Remember, this was in 1876, so there weren't any airplanes that could have dropped it. So where did the meat come from? One theory was from William Alden, a New York Times writer, where he suggested a group of people were possibly knife fighting when they were scooped up by a tornado and finally hashed into small (laughs) chunks of flesh. Oh, William. (laughs) Although Alden was said to probably was joking, saying this, making fun of Kentuckians. Oh, well, he's the one that sounds dumb. A more serious theory from Alden was the meat was possibly alien livestock. Shut up. He's being serious here. (laughs) Okay. Alden said, quote, According to the present theory of astronomers, an enormous belt of meteoric stones constantly revolves around the sun, and when the earth comes in contact with this belt, she is soundly pelted. Similarly, we may suppose that there revolves about the sun a belt of venison, mutton, and other meats, divided into small fragments, precipitated upon the earth whenever the latter crosses their path. No, sir. Yeah. No. No, We don't have any floating meat piles in the damn universe in the solar system. Wouldn't it be awesome, though, a bacon belt around Saturn? I don't know that you'd want to eat it. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, did they, they, this is when cocaine was a big thing, right? Yeah, I yeah. think it was a pre- they would prescribe it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. That explains his answers. Yeah. <laughs> Another claim is a substance was star jelly. Star jelly is a gelatinous substance sometimes found on the grass or even branches of trees. According to folklore, it is deposited on the earth during meteor showers. Star jelly is described as a translucent grayish-white gelatin that tends to evaporate shortly after having fallen. Explanations have ranged from the materials being the remains of frogs, toads, or worms, 
to the byproduct of a cyanobacteria to the paranormal. It's ectoplasm. Hmm. Yeah, from all the cows in space. Mm-hmm. Reports of the substance date back to the 14th century and have continued to present day. Star jelly is also sometimes called star sloth, star slubber, and witch's butter. Was somebody drunk when they thought of star slubber? Yeah, that's my favorite I one. I really like, I feel like if they were drunk and it's like, look at the star slubber. It reminds me of the movie Flubber. Right? Yeah. It's fun. One scientist, Leopold Brandes, wrote an article in the Sanitarian in which he claims the event was simply Nostoc. Nostoc is a genus of cyanobacteria which takes on a jelly-like appearance when it comes in contact with rain. His theory was that it simply bloomed on the ground and what fell from the sky was just normal rain. Others speculate that since Olympia Springs is located in the heart of Dixie Alley, it could have been the meat from a butcher's shop that had been picked up by a tornado and deposited over the area. And Dixie Alley is the name given to some southern states that have a lot of tornadic activity. But you got to remember, too, like, it's a clear day. Oh, so, it could. I mean, it's probably not a tornado. Yeah, probably not. Especially if there's no eyewitness accounts. Yeah. To say, yeah, there was a tornado and it got all my cows and my kids and my goats. Not my goats. <laughs> what? what? I don't you know. You didn't say not my kids. <laughs> We're about the goats. Oh, but they are kids. Mm. Oh, yeah. Boom. Okay. <laughs> Eventually, a chemist named Robert Peter and the chemist from Louisville College both put forth the theory that the Kentucky meat shower was a result of a flock of vultures vomiting simultaneously after feasting themselves more abundantly than wise. No, sir. That sounds ridiculous, but let me explain. Okay. Turkey vultures and black vultures are common to this area of Kentucky, and these vultures feed almost entirely on carrion and human garbage. Vultures prefer to eat freshly dead carrion, but they will also feed on decaying carcasses. The species lacks powerful feet to carry its food, so most carrion is consumed where it is found. Because of this, and since they don't know how long they will go before finding another meal, Vultures tend to gorge themselves when they find a food source. These vultures migrate in flocks that range in size from several birds to several thousand birds. Flock sizes increase substantially in the tropics. In Mexico and Central America, flock sizes often exceed 10,000 birds. That's a lot. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, vultures are big. Mm -hmm. I would probably think it's the end of times I saw 10,000 of them things coming. Well, you might not see them because vultures have been reported by aircraft pilots to rise as high as 20,000 feet and soar for hours without flapping their wings. Wow. Researchers have determined that vultures can travel up to 200 miles in a day. Vultures find food using their sense of smell as well as by sight. They are able to locate carcasses on the floor beneath dense forest canopies. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. In North America, the turkey vulture is the only vulture with a highly developed sense of smell. They can smell things really high up. One theory is that the smell of the boiling fat that Mary Crouch was rendering caused one of the vultures to regurgitate its food, causing the rest of the flock to follow suit. Mm -mm. You don't think so? I don't know. I'm just finding that hard to believe. 
Well, vultures vomit their food in a defensive manner if they are startled by something. It is also believed they may throw up their food to become lighter so they can fly after gorging a bit too much. And like people, many animals have a reflex reaction to vomiting after seeing someone else do it. So this could have caused a huge flock of vultures to rain down meat on the farm that day. Right, so people ate this stuff. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's what I'm centering on. It could have been children. It could have been space cows and venison. Or it could have been puke from a vulture that had eaten a dead carcass. You don't have to chew it. Oh. Apparently they did because it was turning into jerky. After All the a... hard work's done. Mm-mm. That's amazing. It's amazing that people put it in their mouth. <laughs> and the butcher was like, mm-mm, this, this ain't nothing I've ever had. Spit it out. Honestly, that's the most reasonable out of all of the, <laughs> all of the suggestions, the theories. is That's the most logical. I mean, I don't know. The knife fight, that in the tornado... I'm, I'm pushing for that one. Well, the townspeople <laughs> decided that this was a most likely scenario and elected to believe it as the best explanation for what happened. A definitive explanation of the meat shower never reached the residents of Olympia Springs. In 1876, the idea of solving every riddle just didn't exist yet. So they were largely okay with a relatively plausible solution. They're just simple. They're yep. like, hey, good enough. Yep. Hey, you ate it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it was nothing. Okay, so every October, around 200,000 people gather in Kentucky for court days, the largest outdoor event in the state. I've never heard of that. Like C-O-U-R-T? Yeah. Ever since 1794, locals have bought, traded, and sold various goods at the festival held in the city of Mount Sterling. But in one of the strangest offerings in court day history, Kurt Goad, a professor of art at the Transylvania University, handed out meat-flavored jelly beans in 2007 to anyone who would eat them. Some people said the flavor of the dark red jelly beans reminded them of raw bacon. Ugh. Another pair agreed with each other that they tasted like strawberry pork chops. I don't even understand that. Goad, who commissioned the jelly beans with their specific flavor profile, describes them as tasting like a heavily sugared bacon with a metallic aftertaste. The jelly beans were flavored like the 1876 meat shower. Oh, how did he do that? That's a good question. Goad, likely the foremost expert on the 1876 meat rain, first learned about the incident in a book about strange weather phenomena. He just moved to Kentucky from upstate New York and was asking his students for more details about the unusual event. To his surprise, none of them knew what he was talking about. Oh. They'd never heard of it. Well, because everybody was satisfied with it. It wasn't a mystery. Yeah. It was vulture puke. So Goad, an artist often drawn to the strange and obscure, was fascinated by the meat shower. Eager to learn more, he trawled Google Books, old newspaper clippings, and research papers for mentions of the incident. An astonishing find in 2004 was made by Goad. He was clearing out an old storage closet at Transylvania University. Shut up. When he stumbled upon an old glass jar sealed with a cork stopper. Uh-oh. It contained a chunk of white, fatty-looking meat suspended in a pale yellow liquid. The label was faded, but the words Olympia Springs could still be made out. 
and he found the meat. Oh my gosh, a sample. A sample that they just put away. Determined to try and pinpoint what mystery animal rained down over Olympia Springs, Goad worked with a colleague in the biology department to have the sample genetically tested. Unfortunately, the sample was too old and contaminated to give any conclusive results, but was determined to be muscle, lung, and cartilage. Altogether? One of those things. Okay, okay. Then Goad got creative. Much of his artwork involves community engagement, so he had a taste lab based in Cincinnati analyze flavor compounds of the meat sample and reconstruct the taste in a jelly bean. It reminds me of the game the kids got uh, for Christmas, and it was some of them are weird flavored jelly beans. Yeah, some of them were yummy, and then others were like earwax, yeah. toothpaste, like just weird. Uh, it's one weird. was puke. Yeah, it's weird they can do that. It is. But they pick out the flavor profile, so that's what they did with this. And what year did he do this? 2004. Wow. It's weird that he would even want to find that out to see what it tasted like. I mean, I get why, like... Because maybe that would say, oh, it's obviously this. Yeah, he had said it didn't taste like mutton at all. But even back then, a lot of people had varying responses to what it tasted like, which that's interesting. Yeah. Like, why did why was it so different? How do you go from raw bacon to a strawberry pork chop? Different taste buds. Yeah, but that's real different. Accounts from the 1876 describe the meat shower as tasting like mutton, although Goad thinks the jelly bean lacks a distinct mutton flavor. He thought the Kentucky court days would be a good place to talk to locals and gather opinions on what the meat could be. Feedback varied, but ultimately, Goad didn't arrive at any definitive consensus. So nobody knows still. And it hasn't happened since, I guess. No. And he said he's still got a bunch of jelly beans left over because nobody wants to try them twice. No. I'd like to try one. Okay, well, ew. Oh, I should see if I could get some. All you need is one, I'm pretty sure. Two. You got to try it, too. No. I got a kid that'll try anything, so he can try it. So I always forget to do my sources. I always list them on the site, though, but yeah. <laughs> I always forget to say them. So for this one, there's a lot of sources because all the weird things in it. But the three main ones for the story were AtlasObscura.com, Kentucky Meat Shower. It's a good site. Vice.com, The Mystery of the Kentucky Meat Shower. And All That's Interesting dot com kentucky meat shower all them's good so that's it that's the kentucky meat shower wonderful that's interesting i was hoping that you would bring up i wish i could have i wish i had found it um will um we're in wilson county there was like blood rain that happened like back in the 50s or something oh or it was that gelatinous stuff but it hadn't happened since i'm gonna say it was like near lebanon mount juliet i didn't hear that yeah it wasn't like a huge big deal, but I guess maybe they just settled that it was pudding. I don't know. Jello. Well, there was a, it wasn't that one, but one of the star slubber. Yeah. They had gotten a sample of it and it was tested and it ended up being synthetic. It was uh, the little granules that absorb water to keep your plants wet. Oh. Using gardening and stuff. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called, but that's what that one turned out to be. Kind of like the little things, like if you have uh, certain pets or if you breed bugs or insects, you have those little water things. Yeah, like, that's exactly what they were. Okay. Yeah. Nice job. Thanks. It's really disgusting. It's pretty gross. I can't believe they ate it. Why not? It's free meat. I guess. Ugh. So it's your turn. Yeah. You ready to be bored to death? I am ready. 
Okay, I hope everybody is too. And I hope they bear with me because I wanted to end it on a bang. What is yours? What could it possibly be? <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and I will list my primary sources, but I actually had quite a few. Good Day's Work, Grain Dust Explosion Basics and Prevention, Purdue University Agriculture Particulate, and Miller Magazine, Preventing Dust Explosions and Grain Storage, and OSHA website. OSHA. Mm-hmm. Recently... You were watching a video, and it was one of those, is it a montage? Like, it has all the different, is that the right word? Yeah. It has. It was a montage video of all these destructive things happening. And a lot of them, it was kind of like, what did I just see? Because it was very regular places that you would not view as a hazardous area. Unless you work in that particular field or in a particular profession, you wouldn't know that those type of events actually happen all the time. To be more specific... The one that caught my attention was a bin. It was on a farm that was filled with grain. And so for whatever reason, the bin was bent and it was starting to like fall over. And as it was falling over, maybe because the metal got weak or there was too much weight on one side, like I don't know, um, it starts to collapse. And then the grain starts spilling out from the top, starts spilling out from the bottom. Then there's a big rush and all of a sudden there's an explosion. And I was like what in the world? So then you let me watch it again. Yeah, it's not something you would expect to happen. Yeah, because what did I just see? A bunch of corn fail? Okay. It was at this point that I realized that I was probably not adulting correctly because I bet everybody else knows that this happens all the time, except for me. But luckily, it did not appear that that particular explosion led to any additional explosions that moved to like other silos or buildings nearby because there was like equipment connected to that sucker and other silos around it. And what it looked like is it was like a, a transport station, like where they like they were trying to put the grain maybe into a truck. Yeah, they were filling the truck below it. Yeah. And like something just went wrong. Something happened after you were like, oh, yeah, didn't you know that that stuff catches fire? I thought you were lying. <laughs> Uh, But after looking more into this, um, I realized that this is actually a super huge, very big, awful, terrible, big deal. It's so big, OSHA has an entire page and multiple little sub pages that lead to other organizations dedicated just to combustible dust. Farming and grain magazines are like constantly publishing articles on what can be done to reduce these events from occurring. And there are even universities that regularly gather data specifically on dust explosions. I did not know. Like, I knew things like this happened, but I did not know that they happened with these types of materials. Slow body walking here, okay? For a moment, let's discuss combustible dust. According to OSHA, combustible dusts are fine particles that present an explosion hazard when suspended in air in certain conditions. A dust explosion can be catastrophic and cause employee deaths, injuries, and destruction of entire buildings. In many combustible dust accidents, employers and employees were unaware that a hazard even existed. So they didn't even know that there was a hazard there to fix it, which is a problem. Yeah, because who would have thought? That's the scariest hazard right there because you don't know that you're not being safe. Most combustible dust can be solid organic materials like sugar, flour, grain, wood, many metals like aluminum and iron, and some non-metallic, non-organic materials like plastics and glass. Under normal circumstances, these materials are not combustible, but they can burn or even explode if the particles are the right size and in the right concentration. Everything's got to be perfect to explode that glass. There are normal household items that when in a fine dust form 
they can be classified as a combustible dust. So I tried to find them. I'm actually going to link a page to this stuff. Egg white powder, powdered milk, flours such as soy and wheat, corn, rice, and wheat starch, sugar, pudding, then no pudding would blow up, cornmeal, coffee dust, cocoa powder, garlic powder, onion powder, tea, and spice powder. We have almost all of these things right now in our cabinet. Yeah. I never knew. There's not even a warning. We could sue somebody. No, sir. It would be our own negligence. (laughs) Does this mean that you're going to explode your house while cooking your powdered egg whites and making your coffee? Probably. No. However, given the right environment, with just perfect conditions, and the possibility that you have a candle burning or a cigarette in your mouth, you could be blessed enough to experience a fireball in your face. Oh, you get a little ember from the fire? You'll spontaneously combust. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) What? It's those embers. (laughs) But for real, probably not. I really did. I looked, like, to see if any homes had actually exploded from flour. I couldn't find any. No more flour fights in the kitchen. Right? Not if you're smoking with your candles lit. But that's a good thing to note. You never know. In reality, dust explosions generally occur in workplace environments like agriculture, Food production plants, chemical manufacturing, paper plants, fertilizer, woodworking facilities, metal processing, recycling facilities, and fossil fuels like coal. Mm -hmm. Some of these I already knew. I knew that there was like an airborne hazard. That's not the right word, I'm pretty sure. But (laughs) there was a possibility like the air could catch fire. But I did not know that with like grain and flour, soy, things like that. Sugar. So what is creating all of this dust? Good question, Mike. (laughs) Thank you. So dust is everywhere. I mean, it's just literally everywhere. And unfortunately, in these types of work environments, dust is an extreme hazard. When materials are transported, when they're handled, they're processed, they're polished, they're ground up, crushed, cut, mixed, all that stuff. Just simply loading and unloading some of these products creates a fine dust that will disperse into the air, but then also over time, it can build up and create a dry residue on rafters, walls, and even on machine equipment. So this dried residue, which seems harmless, has brought down buildings, blown off roofs, decimated silos and mills, and even caused hundreds of deaths and even more injuries all over the world. So, but we're using these all the time. Are there any, there's, there's no examples of this happening in a, a residence? I, I haven't seen it. Now, I know that some bakeries were on a few lists because they're handling, like, they have big equipment sometimes. Um, But homes, no. A lot of times when these occur, the source is hard to find. Right. And maybe they thought it was faulty wiring. So it could have happened. But I couldn't find anything that said that a home exploded or caught fire because of, you know, one of these materials. But since we're not processing. Yeah. So since we're not processing these materials, we're less likely to like suffer the consequence of a deadly fire. But if we try to demonstrate how flour can explode, we can do so like with little to no effort. So there are quite a few YouTube videos that you can watch so you can see what happens with flour dust and a simple candle. I showed one. There was like a 35 second video that I showed James. I didn't even need the whole 30 seconds. I just need the last like 15 because he had like a funnel and like a tube. And so he blew through it. He had the flour in the funnel, a candle. And so he blew into the tube so that the flour would disperse into the air. And you just see it like catching fire. Cool. Like I never would have known that. With any basic fire, it requires three elements. Fuel to burn, oxygen, 
and an ignition source, like a heat or a spark. In order for a dust explosion to occur, you still need those three elements, but you have the addition of dust particles being dispersed in the right concentration and confinement of the dust cloud. So it needs to be in a confined area. When you have all five of these elements present, you get what's called the dust pentagon or dust explosion pentagon. And if you take out just one element, an explosion will not occur. Same thing with the fire. You know, if you don't, the fire doesn't have oxygen, it's going to go out. I guess the question you have now is, why the science lesson, Wendy? If I wanted to learn something, I, I sure wouldn't be listening to you. Yeah. Am I OSHA approved? No. <laughs> I feel like I'm certified in something. <laughs> well, Mike, I'm just smart enough that I didn't realize how flammable flour and other grain products actually are when given the right circumstances. We live in an agriculture area. I grew up like around farms and stuff. I... Uh, they didn't have this, so maybe that's why I didn't know. There's nature bombs everywhere. Yeah, like yeah. cow pies everywhere, but not this. Before I bore you completely to death, let me tell you where I'm going with this information. Today, I'm going to touch on a few dust explosions that are food-related. This is not to ignore the dust explosions that have occurred in non-agricultural environments like coal mines, chemical plants, places like that. Both are equally devastating and require the same elements of the dust explosion pentagon in order to occur. But the information as a whole is so big and so vast that separating them was easier for me when researching. My goal is for one of us to cover dust explosions that have occurred in non-agricultural areas in the future. I do want to specifically concentrate on like one of these mill explosions in the future. But this time I was I was interested in the combustible dust in general. So what the actual fuck what? is happening? <laughs> Blowing up buildings. <laughs> for meals. At least. Grain transfer points are the most susceptible to a dust explosion. Just like in that one, that video. I really need to post that video, I guess. I need, or I need to like direct y'all to it because it's pretty amazing. It really is. As grain is being agitated, as it's falling into bucket elevator cups or it's moving, just moving along the conveyor belts, dust particles are dislodging and being dispersed all over the place. And then they're just suspended in the air. If these dust particles get too close to a heat source or an ignition source, you get an explosion. Accumulation of dust in suspended ceilings, cyclone collectors, electrostatic collectors, and holding bands are other sources for explosions as well. It's literally your whole building. Sounds like it. Yeah. It's very scary. And some of those videos I was watching, they was hitting stuff with metal stuff, like metal stuff with metal... Uh, but I mean, for real, I thought, oh, shit, they're about to explode. James even called me out on one. He goes, Mama, he's, he's blown into the mic. He's fat breathing in the mic. <laughs> That's going to cause an explosion. <laughs> the friction. They tricked me. When these explosions occur, there are generally two phases. There's a primary explosion and a secondary. It can be difficult to tell that two explosions have even occurred since they can literally happen a split second apart, but there have been occurrences when there were a series of explosions. The primary explosion occurs when dust in a confined space comes in contact with the heat source and ignites. The confined space can be like a container, uh, a room, or can occur on equipment like a bucket elevator or conveyor. If a mill or warehouse practices proper sanitation, good housekeeping, and follows proper safety precautions, a primary explosion still may occur. However, the damage should be minimal and controlled to that primary site. When you're working in the, this environment, it seems like it's one of those things like you can't completely make it go away, but you can take steps. Unfortunately, sometimes a secondary explosion can occur. 
The secondary explosion happens when the shock wave from the first explosion stirs up any surrounding dust and then ignites. So just as long as the five elements of the dust explosion pentagon are present and consistent, a secondary explosion or multiple secondary explosions will occur. These explosions are usually more destructive than the primary explosion, and it is this explosion that is the cause for a majority of deaths that occur and damage to buildings and property. And this is what I'm going to go over next is I'm just going to touch on some of the dust explosions that have occurred in North America. They happen every year. At one point, there were, it was cited there were 10 and a half every year. But there are more than that because there could just be fires or other hazards. It's a big deal. This is not in America but this is the first ever documented one, and I just I wanted to put it on here. Because of this one, this is when they started to realize that maybe dust was flammable. Very fine dust. So the earliest dust explosion occurred in 1785 at a bakery in Italy. A boy's face and arms were scorched while shoveling flour under an open flame. The explosion blew out the windows and the window frames of the building into the street, and it was reported that the explosion occurred due to the corn being so dry because it had not rained in the last five to six months. And so that makes it, that's a factor too. If it's especially hot, especially dry, that's going to, it's just like forest fires that can occur, you know, because it's very dry. There's not been any water, any, you know, rain. So in 1878, right after the the knife fight in the sky. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The most infamous flour mill explosion occurs in Minnesota. The Washburn A mill exploded due to a buildup of flour dust inside the building. This explosion destroyed the largest grain mill in the world at that time and leveled five other mills. 22 people were killed in the blast with no injuries, and the blast was so powerful it broke windows in neighboring towns. That's a hell of an explosion. Yeah, it's 1878. We're not all sardine like we are now. So in 1893, the explosion at a Litchfield, Illinois flour mill was originally blamed on a boiler malfunction. After a further investigation, it was discovered the cause was due to employees not securing the dust collection machine, and it was spilling flour dust into the rolling room. A fire broke out in another room, but before they could stop the fire or block off this rolling room, fire made contact with the airborne dust in the rolling room, which caused an explosion so powerful that it could be heard 25 miles away. And the explosion killed one worker and destroyed 40 houses and two blocks of businesses nearby, which led to regulations for fire suppression systems in the mills and proper training for employees. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah. They could take Wendy's dust particle class. Right. (laughs) I should have brought somebody in from OSHA. Your dad. Well, he doesn't work for OSHA. He did. He was the OSHA guy. I bet he knows all about explosive dust. I bet he does because he worked at like a paper mill, kind of. I mean, were they considered a paper mill? I don't know. I don't know. I do want to put this in here. In 1896, the National Fire Protection Association, also known as the NFPA, is formed and begins to recognize the explosion hazards of industrial dust and create standards for safely managing these hazards. So, in, I mean, 1896, they were they were on it. They were trying to be on it. So 1916, dust explosion occurs out at the Quaker Oats Cereal Factory in Peterborough, Ontario. Killing 23, the fire starts in the oatmeal cleaning room, and it destroys the entire plant and burns for four days. Wow. That's what's scary, because a lot of these, it takes a while. They don't just go out. There's uh, hay bales, like when they cut the, when they cut fields for hay, they rake it, and if they roll it up, like if it rains, yeah. and then they roll it up wet inside can start to compost because it's tightly rolled and they can catch on fire 
Yeah, I didn't know that either until you told me about it. Yeah, lots of barns burnt down because of that. They would put them, they'd roll them up, put them in the barn. It's called spontaneous ignition. Oh. Grains and things like that, they'll do the same thing. Can't remember the exact words, but they have to go in and turn it over to make sure it's not sitting there getting hot and nasty, pissed off. Yeah. So 1924, corn dust exploded in Pekin, Illinois. Is that right? Pekin. Pekin, Illinois. (laughs) They that causes 42 people to die. 1940, I'm not laughing because of that. I'm laughing because of peaking. Yeah. I'm not sure that that's correct. 1948, a uh, Brock's Candy Factory in Chicago, Illinois, explodes from a cloud of cornstarch, which is the cause of 18 deaths. Corn st- I will say this. I want to say it was on the OSHA site. They had this little PowerPoint that I was able to flip through, which was really awesome. Cornstarch is one of the most highly flammable. And the smaller the particle is, the more dangerous it is. Oh, you are a... A lot of fun. Flipping through PowerPoints. Flipping through them PowerPoints. Calm down. Going, who made this? Let me help you. It was from like 2018. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually great. (laughs) Wish I'd found it first. In 1975, a flour mill in Davenport, Iowa explodes due to grain powder. The explosion was so powerful, it kills two workers and shatters windows up to 20 blocks away. 1977, 20 workers are killed in an explosion in Galveston, Texas. The explosion occurred in a grain elevator when the low winter humidity made the grain dust drier and more explosive than usual. Also in 1977, one of the worst flour mill explosions on record occurred in West Wago, probably saying that wrong, West Waco, Louisiana, when a buildup of grain dust came in contact with static electricity. The explosion blew the top of the silo off and caused 48 out of the 78 silos to catch fire. 36 workers were killed in this disaster, including inspectors that were on site visiting. This was So that's the chain reaction you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Most of those people that were there, um, this was on the 22nd of December. They were coming in to get their Christmas turkey that the plant had gifted them for Christmas. And some of them were coming in to pick up their turkey and then this happened and they were killed. There was even one where the there was a boy. It was his first day of work. He was 19. He was working there to help pay for college and he was killed in the blast. And his dad was actually um, a Coast Guard who was actually off that day. But obviously, you know, he went in to help. But I just thought how ironic and sad that was. It was his first day of work. Terrible. So 1998, a series of grain dust explosions began in a grain elevator before traveling throughout a grain storage facility in Hayesville, Kansas. The explosions killed seven people because it was traveling. 2008, the Imperial Sugar Refinery in Georgia explosion was caused by accumulated sugar dust located in the middle of the factory beneath storage silos. The blast killed 14 and injured 40. Yeah, this stuff, is this shit is serious. I don't think this always makes the news. Now, some of these do. Obviously, these really big ones, the Imperial Sugar Refiner, I could find stuff on that all day long. But some of these other ones, you can't, they don't make the news. But this is a big deal. Because it seems like it's easy to fix, but it's really, it's really not. It's a hard, that's a hard job. Farmers and then these factory work, that's hard work. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna get off my soapbox. I ain't gonna get into that. Get off your soapbox. <laughs> Respect them. And they need more than minimum wage. I didn't realize it was so dangerous. Unfortunately, dust explosions are a looming hazard in these high-risk areas, especially if proper maintenance and cleaning do not occur. But there are some other uses for combustible dust. We're going to take it in a different route now. Okay. Under carefully controlled conditions, dust explosions are used by pyrotechnicians, filmmakers, and special effects artists because of how spectacular the explosion can be. So, you know, when you're watching your action movies, that's what that is. Flower power. (laughs) Some of that flower power. (laughs) Well, that was super interesting. 
That, that sounds like I'm being a smart ass. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. Good job. Uh-uh. Not so fast, buddy. <laughs> One more quick tidbit for everyone to think about. Fun fact, Mike. Let's hear it. This is fun fact Mike time. The principle behind dust explosions has been effectively used to create thermobaric weapons. Oh, what's a what's a thermobaric weapon, Wendy? I'm going to tell you. Do I, do I sound like that? <laughs> 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 well, being extremely controversial by many human rights organizations, this type of weapon basically saturates an area with an easily combustible material, kind of like spraying an aerosol, and then... The surrounding atmosphere is ignited. Imagine you and every other guy in the history of ever has your sisters, your moms, or your wife's hairspray, and then you, you're spraying it, and then you light it with a lighter. Do you remember yelling at me for wasting all your hairspray? Yes. It's expensive. Yeah, because it is. Yeah. Picture that. That's what it reminds me of. Because, you know, even when you spray hairspray, it sits in the air for a minute. So imagine catching it on fire then. Please don't do it. Yeah, no. These weapons are considered to be the most powerful non-nuclear weapons in existence. Oh, and the Nazis are the ones that invented these, even though I don't think they ever used them. We have. We're not going to go into that. These weapons have also been referred to as aerosol bombs or vacuum bombs. Most general explosives consist of a fuel oxidizer premix, but thermobaric weapons are almost 100% fuel, which makes them more energetic than conventional bombs. Like in meals, this weapon needs oxygen in order to generate a high temperature explosion. So those explosions in the meals, they have to have that oxygen. So does this. The reliance on oxygen makes it unsuitable to use underwater in bad weather, or at high altitudes. But when the conditions are just right, it is extremely destructive, especially against foxholes, tunnels, bunkers, and caves. So one of the best-known thermobaric weapons is the FAE, which stands for Fuel Air Explosive. An FAE device has a container of fuel and two separate explosive charges. Once fired or dropped, the first explosive charge will burst open and disperse the fuel in a cloud that mixes with oxygen in the atmosphere. Now, the size of the cloud varies with how big it is. The cloud of fuel flows around objects and into structures. It gets into all those hidey holes. And then the second charge then detonates the cloud and creates a massive blast wave. Awesome. Another famous thermobaric weapon is the GBU-43B. Bless you. No. Oh. <laughs> massive Ordnance Air Blast, commonly referred to as the MOAB or... The mother of all bombs. Yes. I'm sorry if I sound excited over this. I'm not excited about the bomb. I've heard of the MOAB. We have all heard of the MOAB. Instead of being dropped, the MOAB is pushed out of a cargo plane on a pallet. It is then directed by a satellite guidance system, which makes it one of the world's largest smart bombs. It normally... Explodes about six feet above the ground and measures about 30 feet in length. So basically when they detonate it or make it go off, I don't know if detonate's the right word. I don't feel like that needs its own term. It basically sucks out all of the surrounding oxygen and then lights the air on fire. Y'all, that's scary. 30 feet? Didn't Trump drop one in Afghanistan? Yeah, we're not going to get into that. Early on. Mm -hmm. He's like, we got five of these things? Yeah, they're about uh, $16 million to make. Let's blow one up. Mm-mm. We have, I think, 20. Is that right? Yeah. It was whatever equals 324 million. Let's blow two of them no. up. No. No. Russia has also created a FOAB, which stands for? Father of all bombs. Right. Of course they did. Yes. Well, actually, I think they made theirs before ours. So they had theirs first. 
and it's apparently smaller and four times more powerful than the Moab. I've got two quotes, one from the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency and one from the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency that I'm going to leave you with because this weapon is so extremely controversial. In a study made by the DIA, they stated, The blast kill mechanism against living targets is unique and unpleasant. What kills is the pressure wave and, more importantly, the subsequent rarefaction, which is the vacuum, which ruptures the lungs. If the fuel deflagrates but does not detonate, victims will be severely burned and will probably also inhale the burning fuel. Since the most common FAE fuels, ethylene oxide and propylene oxide, are highly toxic, undetonated FAE should prove as lethal to personnel caught within the cloud as with most chemical agents. So even if it doesn't go off or ignite... It's still going to kill you. It's still going to kill you. Like, it's still going to be pretty rough. According to a CIA study, the effect of an FAE explosion within confined spaces is immense. Those near the ignition point are obliterated. Those at the fringe are likely to suffer many internal and thus invisible injuries, including burst eardrums and crushed inner ear organs, severe concussions, ruptured lungs and internal organs, and possibly blindness. Another DIA document speculates that because the shock and pressure waves cause minimal damage to brain tissue, it is possible that victims of FAEs are not rendered unconscious by the blast, but instead suffer for several seconds or minutes while they suffocate. That sounds terrible. Yeah. That's almost as dangerous as the gay bomb that the military made. (laughs) Or tried to make. So it was just filled with glitter. And it was, it was just, an idea. That was... <laughs> it was just fun. No. <laughs> That's a real thing. No one actually just, died. So just for everybody that needs to know, that was actually a real suggestion. Google it. Yeah, for real. Google it. It won an, um, an Ig Nobel. And basically what they were trying to do is use an aphrodisiac. They were going to set it off. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> They were going to use an aphrodisiac to basically make the soldiers fall in love with each other, and they would be so consumed by each other and so distracted, we would be able to go in and, you know, win. When it explodes, it, like, rips the sleeves off their shirts and unbuttons the top few. Stop. (laughs) No. Slicks their hair back. All of a sudden, they're way better and more fun. Yeah. (laughs) That was actually a literal, that, that was actually a real thing. And they also wanted to, they wanted to make them um, have halitosis. <laughs> so that, because, you know, depending on where they're at, they're walking through these huge, busy streets. And if you've got severe halitosis, <laughs> nobody's going to want to walk. <laughs> bad breath. <laughs> if you had bad breath. Nobody wants to walk with you or talk with you. <laughs> and they'd be able to point you out. <laughs> and they always want to talk really close to you. <laughs> oh, man. Those are some great ideas. Are they? A bomb is not going to turn people gay. Let's think about it. Yeah, we'll come back to it. (laughs) So that's it. That's combustible dust. (sighs) Good job. Thank you if you're still here. I'm still here. I'm glad. You can't leave, but everybody else could have cut it off. They didn't know where I was going with that, and I told you I was going to end it with a bang. (laughs) Myself. What? Nothing. (laughs) Well, good job. Thank you. So that wasn't a murder. No, but there were... There were deaths and destruction yeah. involved. Here's the thing. Looking at murders all the time is heavy, and you have to take a break. 
and look at other stuff. The gay bomb's a great one to look at. It's so ridiculous. Knife fights in the sky. Okay. Well, great job, bud. Thanks. You too. We'll be back next week, promise. Gotta dust off your cast iron. Get you some of that mystery meat. No. It's hard times right now. They're not that hard. Make you a little stir fry. Hop a little soy sauce on there. Mm -mm. Call it Chinese. (gasps) No. (laughs) No. Mystery meat on a stick. Uh Uh-uh. It's like a buffet. I don't think so. Buffet from the sky. Mm Mm-mm. Don't eat any mysterious meat falling from the sky. Bye. Until next time, fellow Absurdians, remember, everything you've heard is true, monsters are real, and the strangers in black are not a figment of your imagination. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. Do you have a story you want to share? Contact us at eerieandabsurd at gmail.com or visit our website at eerieandabsurd.com to submit a suggestion. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at eerie underscore absurd.